Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. The guest today is a leading philosopher and a consciousness researcher who teaches us at Durham University in England. His name is Philip Goff, and he teaches people how to integrate consciousness into our scientific worldview and how the general theory of reality must include consciousness. To the point that he wrote a book called Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. You have to read this book if you love Bulletproof Radio because he goes all the way back to the foundations of the scientific revolution. By the way, did you notice I did that in my last book when I, when I went back and looked at the foundations of modern science, how they were all looking at natural philosophy and alchemy and stuff like that? So you, you want to read this. Anyhow, Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dave. Good to be here. Good to chat to you. Did you catch a lot of crap when you said, like, we need to rethink what science is to solve the problem of consciousness? Did all the hardcore skeptic science people say, if you don't believe in my hypothesis, you're a bad person? Did they just come after you? To an extent. But, you know, I mean, I think it's like it's it's amazing how much has changed recently. I mean, uh, you know, for for a lot of the 20th century, you couldn't talk about consciousness. You know, it wasn't seen as a... A, a suitable topic for serious science, you know, and people couldn't get jobs if they were interested in, you know, working on consciousness. You know, I, I think a lot has changed maybe from the 1990s onwards. And now, you know, it's broadly agreed that consciousness does pose a serious challenge for science. It's a serious scientific problem. But I think people still, you know, thought, had this approach, well, you know, we just need to do more neuroscience and we'll crack it. You know, we just need to carry on with our standard methods of investigating the brain. But I, th I mean, I think what people are, are, are seeing more recently and coming to think is that, that in many ways, this isn't just another, a standard scientific problem. And the, the conventional tools of, of a scientific method that serve us so well in many contexts are not really ideally suited uh, for this purpose. In fact, uh, you know, as I argue in book, that they weren't designed for this purpose. Uh, so I think, you know, yeah, you still get, you get a lot of resistance because, you know, I think that these questions of science and how we find the truth, uh, you know, people get very passionate about it and it's wrapped up in their sense of who they are and all that. But I think, you know, there really is in the last five or 10 years, um, people really taking a, a different approach to consciousness. And, um, you know, it's really exciting times. You advocate something called panpsychism and i mean that, that on its face just sounds kind of douchey <laughs> so panpsychism <laughs> if i was to walk into a bar and say hey guys what do you think about panpsychism yeah. is, is this some bizarre academic uh, field uh, sort of like you know uh, hidden on a back shelf or is this something that you think is going to change the way we talk about science like, like explain what that is yeah. Well, this is another thing that's changed so quickly. I mean, I guess 30 years ago, panpsychism was just laughed at insofar as it, it was thought about at all. I was actually, when I first finished my PhD and started looking for academic jobs, well-meaning professors said to me, maybe don't mention that panpsychism stuff. You know? uh, but, you know, in the last five or 10 years, it's really become taken very, very seriously in academic philosophy, partly because of the rediscovery of certain very important work from the 1920s by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the scientist Arthur Eddington, who is incidentally the first scientist to confirm Einstein's general theory of relativity after the First World War that made Einstein an overnight celebrity. 
Uh, and that work got forgotten about for a long time. I'm inclined to think these guys did in the 1920s for the science of consciousness what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. And it's a real tragedy of history that it got forgotten about for so long. But it's recently been rediscovered in academic philosophy and is, you know, is really causing a lot of excitement. So that's one reason this is getting taken very seriously. Uh, another reason is, and you know, we can talk about the details there, another reason in neuroscience, the, the, the emergence of the integrated information theory of consciousness, one of leading neuroscientific theories by the, uh, the neuroscientist Giulio Tononi, which is, you know, uh, one of the most respected neuroscientific theories of consciousness, but also has some kind of some panpsychist implications. So I think for these two reasons, this view that was just, you know, laughed at is people are starting to say, hold on, there might, there might be something here. I guess also because this has just proven consciousness such an intractable problem that people are gradually more open to slightly alternative approaches. Can you define panpsychism in one sentence? Yeah, I can define it in one sentence. Consciousness is everywhere. Uh, I, I love that. That's, that is truly distilled down to nothing. But it, it's the idea, as, and I'm, I'm translating my understanding of it, right? You're a professor of philosophy and I'm a biohacker, so uh, we're building bridges here. I look at panpsychism as the idea that everything has a consciousness, and that it's it's built in as sort of like, well, at least some things have mass, although some things like waves don't. And that means that in my cup of coffee in a beaker here has consciousness. <laughs> and submolecular particles have consciousness, and you know, maybe mitochondria have their own consciousness. How accurate am I in my thinking there? What am I missing? Yeah, yes and no. Um I mean the the word does literally mean consciousness everything has mind, pan, everything, psyche, mind. But as it's now defended, it, it generally doesn't mean that literally everything has consciousness. The basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality, perhaps fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, have unimaginably simple forms of experience. And that, you know, the, the very complex, rich experience of the human or animal brain is somehow derived from or built up from the very simple experience of the brain's most basic parts. So, so they are, that's the idea. The basic building blocks have some kind of very rudimentary conscious experience, but it doesn't mean every random arrangement of those particles of those building blocks is conscious. It doesn't mean that your cup of coffee is conscious. It just means that your cup of coffee is made up of little things that are conscious. Okay, got it. So the cup of coffee itself may not, but they are arranged. Right, so if all the atoms and electrons and quarks and muons in my cup of coffee each individual have consciousness, this arrangement probably doesn't have very high consciousness, but it's probably higher than the rock outside, or no? But, like, like they, they, this is it a weird question on, to ask on the show, but to, to understand your belief system that you're saying is going to up in science, I, I got to know. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, absolutely, absolutely, and um, yeah, I, I just one other thing to clarify that you know. What we mean by consciousness here, that's, that's a little bit of an ambiguous word. People often mean, understand something quite sophisticated by that, like awareness of self, awareness of your own existence, right? And that's something maybe we, maybe a sheep doesn't have, never mind an electron. But all we mean by consciousness here is subjective experience, pleasure, pain, visual or auditory experiences, you know, and that's, you know, so human experience 
is incredibly rich and sophisticated. This is the result of millions of years of evolution by natural selection. But, you know, horses' experience is less complex. A mouse, less so. Experience of a bed bug, less so but, again. But there's still some in there, a tiny grain of it as yeah. you go down. Okay. So the idea is, you know, when we get down to the basic building blocks, they have, you know, on a, almost unimaginably simple forms of experience. So we're not think, sitting there thinking the, the electron is feeling existential angst or something. You know, it's just got some, almost, you know, we can't really get a grip on how simple this kind of experience would be. But yeah, that, 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 that's the position. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're, it depends, it depends on your, um, you know, your, your interpretation of panpsychism. To, to think about the integrated information theory, according to this view, uh, you, you get conscious at, at consciousness at the level at which there's most integrated information. So, so for example, according to IAT, a tree does not itself have consciousness because it's, it's probable that there's more integrated information in the cells of a tree than there is in the tree as a whole. So according to IIT, we should think of a tree as sort of a community of conscious cells rather than a conscious thing in its own right. And, you know, what, what is notable about the human brain is that, you know, the incredibly mind-blowing degrees of integrated information with every, every neuron, the cells of the brain connected to 10,000 other others yielding trillions of connections. And, and the way the brain stores information is dependent on those, that network of connections. So coming back to your coffee cup, there probably isn't, there's probably more integrated information, I would say, in the molecules making up that coffee than in the cup of coffee itself. So according to IAT, we'd say maybe the molecules are conscious, maybe the parts, but but the, the cup of coffee as a whole is not itself conscious. Um, I'm, I'm very disappointed at that answer because I was really hoping you're going to say that my cup of coffee was more conscious than your cup of coffee and we could get into one of those debates. Just kidding. Um, now, when you say IIT, I, I, I'm trained as a Silicon Valley tech guy. I know that all the best CTOs come from IIT, which is the uh, Indian Institute for Technology. Uh, so what's the IIT you're talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I, I got I. I did, a, I did a terrible thing then of um, using an acronym without defining it. I, I thought I'd... Uh, but um, yeah, the integrated information theory of consciousness that I mentioned earlier, the, uh, of Giulio Tononi. But, um, but, you know, this is just, this is just um, you know, one approach to consciousness. But I think, you know, what I'm more engaged in is a more general philosophical project that could be applied to many different scientific theories of consciousness. It's more of a broad framework. If you think about, by analogy, you know, the, the idea of evolution by natural selection that uh, Darwin came up with, you know, that's a, that's a very general framework of idea about how life emerged. And then, of course, it takes a century to fill in the details to get DNA. We're still doing it now. So the kind of this form of panpsychism inspired by Bertrand Russell and Arthur Eddington is, is a very general framework for bringing together what we know about ourselves from the inside with what science tells us about the body and the brain from the outside to bring them together in a single integrated picture but of reality. That's the most perfect statement. It's why I wanted to have you on the show. It, the definition of biohacking uh, that I wrote when I first started popularizing it was the um, art and science of changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have full control of your own biology. And you can see the commonalities there. 
where you you have to look at what's going on inside to understand what's going on outside because they're playing with each other all the time. And um, science likes to to look at things, at least most branches of science like to look at things as uh, you know separate. So we, we have even this American uh, you know radical individualism, but not knowing that you know you're surrounded by a cloud of you guys are going to love this given the pandemic and all the germ phobia that's going around. But I'm quoting Wired magazine. Uh, we are all surrounded by a cloud of fart and poop bacteria. Uh, so, so two hours <laughs> after you leave a room, they can identify that you were there just by sequencing the genes of the airborne bacteria and particles. No matter how much hand sanitizer you use, it yeah. cannot be changed. So you are not a radical individual. You're yeah. part of a complex system and you can't change it. Uh, so you're recognizing that and that your consciousness is part of that system too. Um, but I mean, there's a little bit of ego in there. You're like Galileo's error, or sorry, Galileo's error. But like, yeah, this is how this kind of well-respected guy who who noticed this is how he screwed up and, and screwed science. Um, now, before you respond to that, you know, you must have a big ego thing. Bertrand Russell, okay, there's some science behind what you're talking about, but most of what we do is based on assumptions that aren't proven. And I think what you're saying is we have a flawed assumption a couple hundred years back and that we continue down that path. And, and by the way, that statement I just made uh, uh, is a big one. Uh, but when you look at where we've ended up with pharmaceutical medicine, we assumed people were chemical instead of electrical, whereas we're both. So we throw out half the solutions because we didn't think about that. And you can trace one decision from one human caused that divide. So tell me about how Galileo is the human mm. who made this decision based on what he knew that threw us on one path and, and deleted the other path from our consciousness. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really nice way of putting it. I think one of the things I'm trying to draw attention to in this book is that there is a philosophy behind science, uh, a philosophy that, what, that wasn't experimentally proven. It was just a philosophical theory created by Galileo. Uh, as if he was, you know, we think of him as a great experimental scientist, which of course he was, but he was also a great philosopher. And he single-handedly created the philosophical foundations of the scientific revolution and that we science still works with today. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a provocative title, but actually, you know, I've got a huge amount of respect for Galileo. And, and I mean, I actually think he was, he, he got it a lot, yeah. a lot, had a, a lot better understanding of consciousness than we do now. But um yeah, so I think this is a key moment that we have to understand because, um, you know, well, a key moment in the scientific revolution was Galileo's declaration that mathematics was to be the language of the new science. The new science was to have a purely quantitative vocabulary, uh, you know, and this had never been done before. But Galileo knew quite well that you you can't capture consciousness in those terms, you know, and that's because consciousness is an essentially qualitative, quality-involving phenomenon. Just if you think about the, the redness of a red experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint, you can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of mathematics. You can't capture it in an equation, you know, the, what, it, what it's like to see bread. So anyway, well, let, let, we can argue about this, but let's okay. just start with what yeah, Galileo yeah. thought. So Galileo says, right, well, if we want a mathematical science, we have to take consciousness outside of the domain of science. So he said, you know, that's, outside, that's in the soul, that's outside the domain of science. So, so in his worldview, there's this radical division between two domains. There's the quantitative domain of science, 
you know, the physical world, its mathematical properties, and the qualitative domain of consciousness, consciousness with its colors and sounds and smells and tastes, these wonderful qualities. And there's a complete division. And this is the start of mathematical physics, which has gone incredibly well and produced, you know, technology that's transformed our planet. What we've forgotten is that it was never intended as a complete description of reality. The whole project was premised on putting consciousness outside of the domain of science. And I think, you know, if we now want a science of consciousness, we need to find a way of bringing it back in. Yeah, but that's the basic idea, this qualitative, quantitative division. But maybe maybe you're a bit, maybe you're not so sure about that. I'm not that sure about it, but just the idea that, okay, if if we're going to study colors and that was all we cared about, you would ignore temperature. And then if your whole universe was color-based, like, I wonder why sometimes people start smoking and die. It's because you never studied, you never studied temperature, right? So, so you can, you can yeah. focus your lens and you can exclude things that you don't know you're excluding. And you're saying that Galileo actually knew he excluded consciousness because he was trying to create something new, a new lens. I, I, I can go with that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not so much, I, and, and maybe that was necessary to do that. Maybe that was necessary to set outside consciousness for a period of time so we can just focus on mathematical modeling and what can be captured in mathematics. And that was hugely, hugely impressive. But, uh, you know, we're now at a point of history, I think, where we're so blown away by the success of that that we're inclined to think, oh, this is everything. This is this is the truth. This is the... Uh, whereas I think the irony is the reason it's been so successful is because it was always focused on such a narrow, as you put it, a kind of lens, a narrow focused task. And that task was never designed to deal with consciousness. And I think in principle, it, it can't wholly deal with consciousness. It sounds like you're, you're really, you're onto something that it can't wholly do it. The reason I was pushing back a little bit on that is that I look at ancient Buddhism, uh, Lao Tzu's teachings in China, and they were looking for ways to transmit experiences that, like you're saying, you can't just write it down. So they'd say, you know, go sit on a ledge for a week and don't eat anything and it'll induce this state. Or you go to India, do these weird breathing exercises while you know, drinking only a chai or whatever, uh, whatever yeah. that specific Ayurvedic yeah. thing was. And a great portion of people will feel these things. In fact, they will see, and sometimes they'll describe it. You see the Buddha sitting on a pedestal, and then they're teaching you focus. So they're doing all these weird physical and cognitive and focusing tricks to induce a state. And what I found through running and and starting and and doing the work behind 40 Years of Zen, this is a neuroscience institute where we are quantifying the brain in a way that you couldn't really do 20 years ago. Um, And then saying, okay, now, if I want to transmit a state to another person, you kind of can do it with math. Because what you do is you say, sit there and do stuff until until the bell goes off. And when yeah. the bell goes off, you achieve the state. And right now, um, one of the other companies that I'm, I'm working with called HapBee, um, H-A-P-B-E-E, um, they figured out that they could record at a very, very deep level the magnetic resonance. And yes, all things do have magnetic resonance. That's provable. Um, using liquid helium and things like that um, of a substance, call it coffee <laughs> or cannabis. It doesn't really matter. Um, they pick one, figure out what it does, and they can play that back with pulsed electromagnetic frequencies on the brain with noticeable effects that also work on animals. Okay, so this is not 
this is not you know the woo side of things. This is we wanted to make sure that it was yeah. useful and safe. So you know if 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 these effects are happening physiologically in life forms other than humans, we remove placebo. So both of these are examples. One where. I use math to transmit a sensation. This is a sensation of open-heartedness or forgiveness or you know, remapping a brain network because I, I can't tell you, hey, remap your brain networks because this Broadman's area is off, but I might be able to say, make the bell ring. Right? And, and so both of these seem like they're breaking the rules yeah. of panpsychism to say, I'm using math to describe, in one case, the sensation you get after you chug a shot of espresso. And the other hand... Uh, yeah. And both of those, well, one could be espresso, the other one could be, you know, open-heartedness. So how are those not defining categories that, oh, this consciousness thing is actually really is math? No, no. I mean, that, that all sounds, you know, super interesting. And I mean, I certainly don't want to say physical science and neuroscience doesn't have a hell of a lot to contribute. You know, it's absolutely crucial to, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm absolutely fascinated by neuroscience and collaborate with neuroscientists. And, um, but, you know, I mean, the way I see it, we've got to realize what neuroscience can do and what it can't. What, what, I mean, one problem with consciousness, and this is one way of seeing why it's such a unique scientific problem, is that consciousness is not publicly observable. Uh, I can't look inside your head and see your feelings and experiences. You know, only you, as it were, can observe your experiences from the inside. Now, you know, now science is used to dealing with unobservables, right? Fundamental particles like electrons and quarks can't be directly observed. But there's an important difference. In all of these cases, we postulate fundamental particles to explain what we can observe, right? Quarks and electrons are postulated as part of a the standard model of particle physics, which is you know, wonderful a, a capacity to explain what we can observe. In the unique case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain can't be publicly observed. And that really constrains our capacity to deal with it scientifically. So, but as you say, quite rightly, we can deal with it scientifically um, because we can't observe it, but we can ask people, right? We can ask them what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, and we can do this while we scan their brains, an fMRI scanner or EEG. And what we can do then, we can map correlations. So we can see, you know, certain kinds of brain activity in certain regions of the brain are correlated with experience of colors, say. And that's absolutely crucial data. And, you know, any scientific theory, any theory of consciousness has to respect. The problem is that in itself is not a theory of consciousness, not a full theory of consciousness, because what we ultimately want is an explanation of those correlations. That's the big question at the end of the day. Why on earth is a certain kinds of brain activity accompanied by feelings and experiences and experience of color and sound and smell? Why do they go together? And I don't think an experiment is going to, just doing more neuroscience, just gathering more correlations is not going to answer that. I think we have to bring in an element of philosophy. So, so I think experiments are important, absolutely, but they, they can't give us the, the, the full answer here. I had a guy who you reference in your book uh, named Anil Seth uh, who came on. It was episode 590, oh, yeah. and we talked about perception and consciousness. And on that episode, we talked a little bit about how hard it is to map what goes on in your brain and what you actually experience. So, so like you, you might experience someone you know, slapping yeah. you in the face, and I experience it, and you get incredibly aroused, and I get incredibly offended. But it was the same exact thing. I'm not saying that, I'm just saying that you're British, so the odds of that are high. 
but uh, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, cripplingly shy. Uh, but you know what? Whatever that is. But but that it's a, a kind of a dumb example. But uh, the same physical thing, and it it does correlate, but it's probably not causal because different people have exactly the same physical experience and have very different inner experiences of it. How how do we solve that from a scientific basis? I, I, I really care about that. My my goal is everything I do after the episode, I want you to feel that it was worth your time. After you drink a cup of the coffee, you go to my restaurant whenever it reopens, I, I want you to feel like, wow, I have so much energy. I'm trying to orchestrate feelings in people, but people keep feeling different things when I do the same thing. Like, like how do you scientifically solve that problem? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, and I, I, I know Neil Seth very well, and we have a really good. I mean, we have the polar opposite opinions on this topic, cool. but we have a really nice, friendly interaction. We we first met each other having a Twitter argument, and uh, and um, he wrote a post slagging off panpsychism, and is that an Americanism as well? Slagging uh, no, that, that's off? more that of a British, British thing, but I think we'll we'll figure it out. That's more slag. You know yeah. what I mean. Uh, and then I wrote an angry one back, and then but then we made friends, and we realised. But um, yeah, so look, I mean, there are challenges. You you're right. There are like really serious challenges just to establishing those correlations. You know what kind of brain activity goes with what kind of experience because consciousness is unobservable. You know, it's it's really hard to you're relying on people's testimony about their private inner experience, and it's it's really hard to map those together. But um, but you know, I think Anil's position is. Well, we just need to do more science, and I think he thinks eventually will this sense of mystery will go away. He compares it to life, and you know, you know, we, we used to worry about life. We used to think life was a miracle. We did more science, and the sense of mystery went away. But I think that there are real crucial differences in the case of consciousness. In the case of life, what are we trying to explain? We're trying to explain pub, what is publicly observable behavior. In, you know, and science is really good at that. Science is good at explaining what we can observe. In the case of consciousness, we're explaining something that's not publicly observable. And in the case of consciousness, we're explaining something that involves these, these qualities that we apprehend when we attend to our experience, qualities that just can't be entirely captured in a sort of purely quantitative vocabulary. So I think there are reasons this is just a fundamentally different problem. So Anil is doing great work. I'm really looking forward to his book. A really great work in correlating what goes on in the brain with consciousness. Right, great. But let, let's say one day he finishes that. We've still got the question, why? Why does brain activity go along with uh, conscious experience? Yeah. You know, and there are different theories. There are different theories. There's a panpsychist has one theory. We could go into more details about that. The 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 two traditional options are the dualist who believes in the soul, the materialist who thinks really it's just about the chemistry of the brain. It's really about electrochemical signaling. All of those theories account for the correlations of neuroscience. Um, you know, people have this mistaken idea that the neuroscience supports materialism, the conventional you know scientific view. The neuroscience is just neutral. The neuroscience just gives you correlations. And then there's a whole host of yeah. different philosophical theories to explain those correlations. And, you know, just doing more experiments will just get us more correlations. We've got to address the philosophical issues. And I think that's what people are starting to see now, to be honest. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. 
There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. I grew up in a very strong Western science, you know, engineering, physical reality uh, uh, family, uh, you know, grandparents, PhD scientists and, and all that. And I, so I kind of had the meat robot perspective on humans, right? Even some of the, the language around biohacking that I, I created, you know, hack your health, <laughs> you know, it's very hardware right, right. and software centric. And it's actually a good model for thinking about it because most of us understand hardware and software, yeah. but it actually isn't very accurate. It's just a good way of thinking about it. And the more work I've done, you know, the more I, I've, I've, I've solved a lot of the hardware problems. But when you get into the software, you realize, oh wait, uh, this whole materialism thing where we're just meet robots doesn't work that well. Uh, and it, it, the part of the problem is different people experience different things. And on the neuroscience front, we do know now, uh, some of the very advanced mental and, and spiritual states described by meditators and you know, very advanced practices. Uh, and they can be programmed. And most people will experience that, but not all, right? Because they have different networks and all that, and no one can explain why. Uh, so I, I feel like we're, we're getting there, but there is something that's outside of humans, uh, which is why I, I reject the meat robot into to the point where yes you're a meat robot if you give you cyanide you'll shut down your power systems in your cells and you will die so that's yes but there is more so you have to at least in, in my my where i've ended up so i can more accurately get what i want out of my my body and my experience is that you simultaneously are the, you know the sum of your parts and something else but do you have from a panpsychism perspective what is that other thing like where does it live that's really interesting. Let me let me let me get to the core of it. And I mean, just to back up your experience, there. I mean, this stuff's really messed me up because, you know, I've always loved science. I've always, you know, and when I studied philosophy, you know, I thought I wanted to be a materialist, and I just came to see it. Just it just didn't make sense when it comes to consciousness. So then I thought, oh, maybe I can believe in the soul, but I just think that's has such deep problems. Of another, of a more straightforward scientific nature. So I came to think that that you know these two conventional options of materialism and dualism were just both completely non-starters. Uh, and I actually gave up the subject. I thought I just don't want to think about this anymore. I went, left academia, went and did something else. Lived in Poland for a bit. Uh, and it was discovering panpsychism, this middle way that sounds a bit wacky, but I think that that avoids the deep problems of these more conventional options that really drew me back into this. But let me answer your, mm -hmm. your question directly. So the starting point of Russell and Eddington is that physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is. And that seems like a really weird claim. At first. You know, you think you study physics, you learn all these incredible things about space and time and matter. But what Russell and Eddington realized is that for all its richness, physics is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, what it does 
you know, think about what, what, what does physics tell us about an electron? It tells us it has negative charge, it has mass. And these properties are completely characterized in terms of behavior. Things like attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. It's all about what it does. Physics tells us what the electron does, but not what it is. Uh, and so, you know, I always make an analogy with a chess piece. You know, if you have a the, the bishop on the on a you know a concrete chess piece on a board, you might want to know what it does. You know, if it's a bishop, it moves diagonally in any direction. But you might also be interested in the chess piece itself. You know, is it made of wood? Is it made of plastic? Is it made of metal? Similarly, with an electron, you might be interested in what physics tells us about what it does. But you might also be interested in the electron itself, independently of its behavior. What is an electron? And physics just has nothing to say about this. So it turns out there's actually this huge hole in our standard scientific story of the universe. So the proposal of Russell and Eddington was to put consciousness in that hole, right? Okay. We're looking for a place for consciousness. We've got this hole. Let's try and put consciousness in the hole. So the, the view is it's a form of panpsychism, but not necessarily anything, you know, supernatural or not necessarily anything mystical even. The idea that, you know, there's just matter, particles and fields, but matter can be described from two perspectives. Physical science describes it from the outside in terms of its behavior, all great stuff, but matter from the inside is made up of consciousness. So it's this, it's this beautiful, simple, elegant way of bringing together the facts of natural science and the reality of consciousness into a single story. So, you know, this is radically non-dualistic. People, when, you, when they first hear about panpsychism, they think, oh, the, the, you know, the electron is supposed to have its physical properties like mass, spin, and charge, and also these consciousness properties. That would be a kind of dualism, and it would lead to many problems. The, the physicist Sabine uh, Hossenfelder has written a blog post slagging off, criticizing <laughs> panpsychism on this basis, but she's interpreting it in this dualistic way. That's not the view. The view is that Mass, spin, and charge are forms of consciousness. Physics tells us what they do, but it doesn't tell us what they are. What they are are forms of consciousness. So what I love about this is it, is it, it leaves science unchanged. It, you know, we don't, we, the worry with dualism is that you're going to interfere with science as we understand it. It just has the physical world exactly as science tells us, but the reality underlying that structure that physics tells us about is experience. Uh, anyway, that's, that, that's, sorry, that was a bit, I went on a bit it, then, then I got it a bit makes, carried away. It, it makes a lot of sense. And, and that was just your, your particles doing that with their own will. It wasn't you. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I tell my lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is true though, that, that panpsychism is, is having a bit of a moment as, uh, as you say, cause there've been four big books that came out in 2019 about it. So if you're a listener of the show for a while, you probably have seen these come across your feeds because the AI systems uh, that are our overlords, our robot overlords, as we like to say, um, are uh, uh, they're going to filter these to you because you're probably someone who pays attention to stuff like that. But there's all these things about the feeling of life itself. Um, your book, yeah. uh, Galileo's Error. There's some, the case against reality, which made its, its circles. And these are all panpsychism books sort of saying there's something missing. Now, do you think that this huge, 
I'm going to call it break in in almost reality that's induced when, oh, everyone stay home for a few months and disrupt everything you do. Is that going to cause people to think more about this or less about this? That's a good question. I mean, who knows what, what this such strange times we're living in are going to end up. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, there's definitely something going on. Actually, me and Christoph Koch's book, The Feeling of Life Itself, we're, we're currently doing a thing where we're reviewing each other's books for an issue of um, American Journal of Psychology, which I'm I'm really late with. I need to get on with that. <laughs> the life um, of a writer. <laughs> so yeah, but I'm engaging with all these people, and you know, I, I've talked a lot to Annika Harris. Her book Conscious came out as well. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I've got disagreements and agreements with all that, but this is, you know, it's it, it, there's something emerging here, and you know, who knows who's right? I don't know if my my view's right. You know, I think. You just need to put ideas on the table and interact and, and, and work through it. And, and, um, and, you know, it might come to nothing. You know, who knows? Who knows what the truth is? But, you know, I think this is, you know, why I try to press this, this is, I, I think people are in this, the hardest narrative to get over. I think people think, look how successful science has been, our conventional scientific method in explaining so much of the universe producing, uh, you know, such incredible technology, of course it will one day explain consciousness. I think that's how Anil Seth thinks, and that's very understandable. But I just think there's a different way of thinking about the history of science. Yes, it's been incredibly successful, but it's been incredibly successful because it was focused on something quite specific that was never designed to explain. You know, if Galileo time-traveled to the present day and heard about this problem of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, he'd say, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to deal with observable, quantitative, mathematical stuff, not subjective, unobservable qualities. You know, he was much more clued up. I think we're just getting carried away with the success of this wonderful thing, but which was designed for for a specific task. The scientific dogma has become... If it isn't measurable, it doesn't exist and is worthy of disrespect. And that is usually a problem of not having the right measurement tools. (laughs) Or maybe it doesn't exist. Or maybe uh, in the nature of consciousness, maybe it can't be measured with physical tools. uh, But it can be measured uh, because, you know, do two people know they're in love with each other? Just ask them. (laughs) Like, there's a measurement. Was that a direct observation? Oh, no. Uh, So... Th- yeah. That's been the fundamental learning uh, for me along the way it is is just that, look, um, acupuncture was complete nonsense uh, in the family where I grew up and no one would ever do that unless they wanted to be conned. And then when we had observable uh, tools that could figure out there were very minor electron flows on the skin, like, oh, yeah, so maybe it's not. And, and what I realized is that I had grown up, computer science degree, all that, with the, the capital S form of science where uh, it, it is a religion. And it's a religion where your hypothesis is right and everyone else's is wrong. And you have to go, uh, you have to go to war against them and you can have holy crusades, right? Whereas the lowercase s form of scientism is I'm really curious and I might be wrong and I sure hope I'm not, but I'm willing to consider the fact and I'm not going to, uh, you know, insult, belittle or attempt to destroy the careers of people who disagree with me. So healthy debate is good. Uh, but this, you know, I'm going to put laws in place to prevent people from speaking what disagrees with me, which is what's happening today. Um, or better yet, just put algorithms into our social media feeds. And then suddenly the debate never happens. And then we end up with a very boring and inaccurate world. Uh, so I, 
appreciate you're not contributing to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's understandable. I think it makes people nervous when you can't settle something with an experiment, and you think, you know. And but I mean, the fact is, we tried scientism in the early part of the 20th century. It was the view logical positivism. We tried to make sense of this idea that the only meaningful questions are scientific questions. Everything else is meaningless gibberish, and it just it didn't work out. And hardly any any philosophers would defend philosophers of science would would defend that view nowadays. You know, we saw the, the the deep sort of contradictions inherent in it. But I guess it's I mean I guess it's people don't really understand what 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 philosophy is. So, you know, uh, you know, I, I, there's a similar issue in quantum mechanics. I think you know quantum mechanics is one of our most you know successful scientific theories in terms of prediction and um you know almost all of our technology is based on it from smartphones to gps or whatever the problem is no one knows what the hell that theory is telling us about reality you know and we have these different interpretations and um and when you know people are interested some scientists are interested in which of which of those interpretations is right? Mm. Which, which is the reality? And there's a big taboo. You know, the philosopher Sean Carroll, sorry, the physicist Sean Carroll talks about this a lot on, on his podcast. Uh, you know, there was a taboo to dealing with this because you can't settle it with an experiment. So it's not real science. So it's sometimes called a shut up and calculate approach. Just it works. The equations work. Get on with it. But, you know, I think that's not good enough. That's, you can't, you know, there's natural science isn't just about making things that work, building bridges, curing disease, important as they are. It's about, you know, the natural human curiosity to understand the universe we live in and our place within it. And, you know, especially with consciousness, you know, I think consciousness is at the root of human identity. You know, it's arguably the basis of everything that's important in human existence. And yet I believe our, our official scientific worldview doesn't have a place for consciousness, you know, and I think that can lead to a deep sense of alienation. You know, I think we, we know we have feelings and experiences, but our official scientific worldview tells us there's just electrochemical signaling up in our heads, you know, and I think we know in, intuitively that's not the same thing. So I think, I think what panpsychism offers is a way, a, a picture of the universe where we can understand our place within it. And so, you know, this is a potential not only to address one of the deepest challenges of contemporary science, but also I think to transform in a positive way our understanding of what it means to be a human being. So, yeah, so I think this stuff matters. We can't just pretend it, do pretend it, it doesn't exist, pretend it doesn't exist just because it can't be fully addressed in a conventional scientific way. I'm glad you brought up quantum physics uh, because we know at this point that a huge number of things happening inside our cells, inside our brains are quantum. Uh, in fact, anytime you're using an enzyme, <laughs> there's a little bit of a quantum biological effect. And this is hardcore quantum biology, not the the woo side of quantum, not rejecting that outright, yeah. but just saying, you know, this, this is, uh, you know, biological things. Oh, this tunnels through that in order to make a, a faster chemical reaction sort of quantum behaviors. We also, though, have a pretty good provability on the observer effect. And if you're saying consciousness is woven into everything, and there's some consciousness in the particles of my cup of coffee there, why couldn't the particles in my cup of coffee observe the electron going through the slit and then determine where it goes? That's a good question. So, yeah, well, I would say 
the idea that consciousness plays a role in what's called collapsing yeah. the wave function. I mean, that's, I would say that's one interpretation of, of, of quantum mechanics. Actually, it's been explored recently by the philosopher David Chalmers uh, in the context of, 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 a, of a dualist philosophy. David Chalmers is, is, a, is a dualist. He thinks, you know, consciousness is non-physical, but, he want, but he's, he's a complete atheist secularist and he wants to bring uh, consci- non-physical consciousness into the domain of science. Um, and in that context, he's been exploring this old idea that um, consciousness collapses the wave function and, um, you know, it's sometimes mocked. It's been there since the start. And it's, in some sense, quantum mechanics seems to suggest it. But, but he's thinking, well, let's just rigorously work it out, you know, rigorously work out the details with his colleague, the philosopher of physics, Kelvin McQueen, and, you know, see, if, see how the theory shapes up. And this is, you know, perhaps one of the most rigorous workings out of this theory. And he comes up with some of the problems and, you know, some of the advantages. He's not saying this is the correct view. And, you know, there's some really interesting work there. There's going to be a, a, an Oxford University press volume on quantum mechanics and consciousness oh, cool. that, that, vo- that that's going to come out in. And I, I've got something contributed to that as well. But you quite rightly say, you, 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 you know, you, you, got, you hit the nail on the head there that this doesn't work for panpsychism because panpsychism consciousness is everywhere. So the wave function would always be collapsed. Whereas what we want is this contrast between, yeah. if you put it in terms of Schrodinger's cat, you know, the, the box is closed, the cat is alive and dead, uh, the box is opened, uh, the cat is definitely alive or definitely dead. Uh, in, in David Chalmers' view, it's the role of the, non, the, the non-physical consciousness interacting with the system. But if consciousness is everywhere, you'd never get those, what, what are called superpositions, yeah. where the cat is both alive and dead. So, but I, I think there are just, I mean, there are other interpretations of quantum mechanics where consciousness doesn't play a role. So for example, Probably among philosophers of physics, the most popular uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics is the many worlds interpretation. Uh, And that seems kind of extravagant and wacky. You know, you've got all these branching universes. But the reason kind of hard-nosed philosophers of physics like that is because you don't get collapse of the wave Mm. function because you you don't get a situation of going from um, a superposition of numerous possibilities to just one possibility because the, the superposition is really okay. rep, represents these branches of the wave of the, of the, um, you know, the branching possibility space. So in that interpretation, so physicist Sean Carroll, for example, who's, you know, not in my kind of panpsychist, but he's a hard nosed materialist scientist, but he likes the many worlds interpretation because you don't have collapse of the wave function, you don't need consciousness doing spooky things. Uh, got it. I myself, and this is my contribution to the um, quantum mechanics and consciousness volume, I don't like that view. I, I don't think you can really make sense of consciousness in that view for various reasons. I prefer the, the Bohmian interpretation where you have uh, the wave function and you have particles, and a wave function kind of guides the particles. Anyway, I, I think that view fits better with how I think about consciousness, and, uh, but anyway, okay. that view that view doesn't have doesn't have consciousness collapsing the wave function either. So you're right; you, you can't go for the kind of interpretation of quantum mechanics where consciousness collapses the wave function. But fortunately, there are there are other interpretations. And Chalmers' work with multiple realities and all that uh, it really makes for Doctor Who. Mm. Uh, it, it makes for sliders. I mean, <laughs> all, all the good TV shows require alternate universes. I, I mean, heck, 
<laughs> Even yeah, Avengers yeah, requires yeah. that. So we would lose so much art yeah. if we uh, if we don't if Absolutely. we don't at least pretend that that might be real. Yeah, okay. it's got to the point where the science is weirder than the fiction. But yeah, let's say a listener of the show right now saying, you know, I think I want to call myself a panpsychist. I, I believe that wow, this uh, this you know dualism uh, where you know I, I I can only believe in the meat robot thing. I, I've burst that bubble there. What would the impact on their life actually be? Would they just walk around more confused than they were before? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say two things to that. I mean, you know, one thing is part of what we're doing is is is, is trying to find the truth, trying to have our best guess. Who knows what the truth is, but trying to have our best guess at what reality is like. Uh, you know, we're not interested. Ultimately, we shouldn't be interested in which view we'd like to be true, but which view is most likely to be true. And I think there's a good case that panpsychism is for the probable truth of panpsychism on the basis that it's the best account humans have come up with for how okay. to fit to consciousness into our scientific story. But I, so that's one thing, you know, it's, if it's the truth, it's the truth. And we should, we should try and have our best guess at that. But I also do think it's, it's it, independently. And this is what I explore in actually the final chapter of my book. You know, the first four chapters are just the kind of cold blooded philosophical and scientific case. But then the final chapter, I explore the sort of implications for human existence. And I do think this is a picture of reality, which is maybe slightly more consonant with human mental and spiritual well-being. You know, I mean, materialism is pretty bleak. You've got sort of a mechanistic picture of nature and the cold immensity of empty space, you know. Whereas in, in, in Panpsychus worldview, we are conscious creatures in a conscious universe. It's a sort of picture of the world we, we sort of feel a little bit more at home in. And, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on at the moment. And, you know, I, I think there are lots of, lots of reasons for this economic and political. But I wonder whether some of it is what, 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 what was once called the, the disenchantment of nature, this sense that we don't fit into the universe. And you know, I wonder whether the attraction of nationalism or even fascism is, you know, trying to find a, how you fit into the world. And I think in, in some ways, panpsychism is, is a little bit more of a picture of the universe we fit in with. I also think it might, you know, like better relations with the environment. You know, if you, you know, in a materialist worldview, a tree is kind of a mechanism. And, you know, what is the value of a tree if it's a mechanism? It's sort of what it can do for us, you know, or looking pretty. But if you think a, con a tree is a conscious organism in its own right, then it's a cent a focus of moral value in its own right. You know, if you these terrible forest fires in Brazil were all horrified by, but if you see that as burning of conscious organisms, albeit very alien ones to human beings, you know, I think it it adds an extra moral dimension. So I mean, I explore a little bit the idea of you know if a child was raised in a panpsychist conception of the world that you know it could be a slightly enriching although my my child is skeptical <laughs> of this so well, of course that i said trees have feelings we've got a we've got a madagascan dragon tree over here susan uh maybe you can see i love it uh and she said trees don't have feelings so she she she's and not persuaded she? but oh there three. you go so I've got, I've got, got time. time. Well, it's time. interesting because a lot of the, the traditional, you know, shamanic uh, and just older, you know, druidic, uh, in fact, almost all of the, the ancient stuff uh, from any culture I've ever studied um, teaches uh, some kind of animism. 
and that there is a consciousness in the rock and that you can put your consciousness in other things. And I've done training with shamans who still do that sort of stuff today. Uh, my kids are in a Waldorf school and they definitely teach, uh, you know, both views. You know, hey, like, let's figure out what phylum that goes in and how to categorize it and, you know, listen for the forest fairies and they both exist. And kids don't seem to have a hard time with, with that. Oh, you know, let's switch into peace, nature, hippie mode, and then let's switch into, I want to learn HTML daddy mode. And they don't seem to have a problem. Um, so I, I think yeah. it's a healthier yeah. way of interacting with the world, to be perfectly honest, because it gives you permission to be curious about and experiment on your own consciousness. But if you believe your consciousness doesn't exist or doesn't matter, it actually suppresses one of the things that makes you human. And, and that might be the, the biggest gift of panpsychism as something to at least consider. Absolutely. And, you know, independently of my stuff, what, what I explore in the book is just the straightforward empirical study that's now discovered people like um, Monica Gagliano, um, that the, the sophistic, the intelligence, the intelligence and sophistication of plants and animals far transcends what we previously realized that she's actually, Monica Gagliano has actually managed to do conditioned learning to pea plants. She can teach them to associate uh, the sound of a computer fan with their source of food. So eventually they follow the computer fan, even when the food isn't there. Wow. And, you know, how, how uh, what's her name now? Susanna Simmer, is it? Um, it? You know, trees are connected under the ground, you know, well, in a very complex web of community. The secret life of trees with, is scary you know, if you read that. I mean, it, it's also yeah, beautiful, yeah. but... So I think maybe there's, you know, we had this kind of cultural revolution in the 60s, but maybe then there wasn't the intellectual framework to underpin that and i think that's maybe something that's uh, that's emerging a lot more okay. now but i mean i still think things are sh i mean the, the, the things are shot down i mean this i think in some ways terms like new age function as sort of racist terms in a way you know like a racist term picks out an ethnic group but it sort of associates them with some negative connotations i think the term new age picks out certain philosophical or scientific views but implies that they're garbage and you know and of course there's a lot of non-rigorous thinking in this area but there is in any area uh and you know I, I think you know we shouldn't shut down options with the way we you know just because of their cultural associations we should judge a view on its explanatory power not its cultural associations and i wonder you know this is there's something political here i think about shutting down the cultural revolution of the 60s with these kind of terms like mocking hippies and stuff and yeah so so i think you know we need the spirit of the enlightenment is is taking the hypothesis on its own merits looking at the evidence looking at the arguments maintaining an open mind now i have to ask you now that you you open that door if i take acid will i understand panpsychism better that's a good question. Um, <laughs> or mushrooms or whatever, you know, insert name of psychedelic substance here. Kind of twofold answer. I think, you know, first, as I always like to emphasize, a lot of people defending panpsychism, despite its connotations, people like David Chalmers or Luke Roloff's complete atheist secularists, no kind of spiritual leanings. They're just, they, you know, not, not believing in anything necessarily spiritual. They're just believing in feelings, pain, yeah. pleasure. These things are undeniable, and they just want to find a way of explaining that perfectly natural phenomena. However, I guess if you are in a panpsychist worldview, I suppose it does fit better with certain, if for independent reasons you have certain spiritual convictions, perhaps through taking hallucinogens. So, you know, people in all cultures 
have the have had these experiences, perhaps on hallucinogens or after prolonged meditation, that there's some kind of, uh, you know, universal consciousness underlying all things. If you're a materialist, you probably have to think that's a delusion. You know, something funny going on in your brain. But if you're a panpsychist and you already think the fundamental nature of reality is made up of consciousness, it's not much of a step to take those kind of experiences seriously. And they're really good. I mean, I, I, I come out of a very dry, what's called analytic philosophy, a tradition that's very dry, scientific, logic-based. But, you know, there's come out of that tradition people like wonderful philosopher, Australian philosopher Miri Al-Bahari, who defends something like that kind of mystical view, but in a very dry, rigorous, plain, working out the epistemology uh, on the basis of treating meditators as sort of experts of consciousness. And so, you know, I just think it's wonderful to have this. It gets a bit scary because you wonder, are we going to get lost? Are we just deluding ourselves? But you've just got to, we've got academia and we've got peer review journals and you've just got to trust the institutions. That's what more than ever, the importance of institutions to be able to distinguish the woo and the crap from serious, rigorous study. And if you ignore all the woo, you'll never figure out which of it was actually crap and which of it had some merit. And that's that's a problem that's going on right now. And I've, I've spent a lot of time you know, looking at that and rejecting most of it and sometimes going, wait a minute, there's a long lineage here and it's provable or it has a, a, an effect that I can feel that's way more than placebo. And when you get to that, and not just me, but you know, others, you get to saying, all right, there's something here. I have no idea why. And just to accept that, that's the hacking perspective. The, the Western science perspective is if I don't have an explainable mechanism, it doesn't work. You're like, but I can prove it works. I just can't prove why yet. And I've ended a couple of debates yeah. with people that way. And they go, well, if, if, there's no, if there's no effect, if there's no, if there's no mechanism, it doesn't work. I go, great. The mechanism is leprechauns. And they go, what? That, 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 that's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay. If you needed one, because the mechanism that we've believed for most of the things uh, throughout history of science, the mechanism was wrong because there was another layer underneath that we didn't understand. You know, we had a full, a full explanation for biological chemical mechanisms that didn't understand quantum tunneling. <laughs> but still, the, it worked. So you could believe in it if you had a story. So I'm like, let me give you a story, one that's provably stupid. Uh, but who knows? Maybe it is leprechauns. You haven't disproven that. So uh, th that mindset, I think, Panzeichem just says, look, you at least have to look at the woo. And when you're studying consciousness, there's a whole lot of woo in there. And it's okay that it's in there. And, and that's why I'm, I'm attracted to the field and the fact that there's people scientifically sitting out there with a variety of opinions saying, consciousness matters and so thank you for being uh, one of those people and thank you for being uh on bulletproof radio it, it's been fascinating to delve into the mind of a, a philosopher thanks very much dave this is great this is a really enjoyable chat i've learned a lot actually uh, i think i've learned a lot more than you um, unless uh, we're talking about coffee in which case I, i'm now sad to have learned that my coffee is not independently conscious i thought it was hacking <laughs> this whole time uh, but your your book uh, galileo's error uh, is available now and it is a, a very worthwhile read. So like I was saying earlier on the show, if you're interested in consciousness and, and if you want to upgrade yourself, what do you just want to be a wall of abs? Okay, that's fine if that's you know, the upper limit of what you want, but you probably want to be a wall of abs with a highly functioning, happy, healthy, impactful uh, person uh, tied to it. And I believe that looking at consciousness is necessary and I've had the highest return on investment for my own things after I got my basic energy systems working 
was going straight to my consciousness and working on that. And there's a whole, so many tools available to do that. Some of those are in episodes for you. Some of those you'll find just by reading a book like Galileo's Error. But just always says, be curious is the most important thing. Now, speaking of being curious, I appreciate that you listened to this episode and I'm curious and I'd be grateful if you would share your thoughts about it with a rating and a review on iTunes. I actually read them. I take them seriously and it's how I measure the consciousness of my show. Well, at least the appeal of it and whether it's making a difference. The goal for me is I want you to walk away from the show saying I got more value in the hour I just invested than the value of the time I put in. So the ROI for you has to be positive. Otherwise, you really should unsubscribe and find something that's higher ROI for you. So that's the bar. And if you think this episode did it or any other one, I'd say subscribe. Go onto your favorite podcast platform. I'm going to keep bringing you innovative scientists, thinkers, thought leaders, philosophers, biohackers, and other people who do game-changing things. See you next Tuesday or next Thursday. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.